Okay, so this is our CMODO reading group. Um, we're picking up from, sorry, I forgot to check the page number. I think it's 93 is what I said earlier. Um, we're at the section break, um, or sorry, the chapter, chapter break, um, the, the third part, the um, affective emotional content of images or whatever the English is. I'm looking at the French right now. Um, Oh, Ali, would you mind muting? Because there's a bit of noise on your end. Um, affective emotional content of images, yeah. Um, yeah, so last couple of times, um, we had looked at the... Um, so Simon Noah has been arguing um, essentially against Gestalt psychology, um, and, and not in the sense that he like is rejecting it, that he thinks it's like bad or something. He thinks that it has made an essential contribution to psychology, um, but he thinks that it's... Uh, sort of too limited in its, um, uh, so there's a, a principle in Gestalt psychology that's called the isomorphism principle, which holds that um, there's a, a, an isomorphism or a, a correspondence of structure between physical processes and um, experiential processes. And the sort of concrete realization of that is this idea that um, we, uh, in our perception, we have a tendency to um, perceive uh, forms that minimize a particular quantity. Uh, and so the, the sort of stock examples of this are geometrical figures. Um, and uh, so we've talked about the example of a, a sphere um, uh, in the case of physical processes. Um, uh, in the case of a soap bubble, for example, uh, it, it forms a spherical shape just by virtue of minimizing surface tension. So a sphere is the smallest shape for a given volume uh, in terms of area, the, the smallest area uh, that encloses a given volume. Um, so a, a soap bubble just takes on a spherical shape by minimizing surface tension. Uh, and and uh, so the Gestalt psychologist held that in perception, we sort of uh, find ourselves attracted to uh, geometrical figures like a sphere or a circle or a triangle or whatever, uh, because they minimize a kind of experiential tension in, in parallel or like in the same way that... Um, that physical shapes minimize um, physical properties. And Simondon has given a bunch of examples to show that uh, these sort of simple geometrical figures are not really the good examples of, of these pregnant shapes, the shapes that draw our attention or that our, our experience is sort of oriented around. Um, so there's a few different things, like, for example, a human face is very pregnant in that sense. So any any sort of, like... Uh, if you see a human face, you know, partly hidden by grass or um, uh, leaves of a tree or whatever, you, you can still see the face, even though it's partly hidden. Uh, the face uh, outline or the, the shape of the face, like, draws your attention despite being partly covered. Um, and a human face, of course, is not a simple geometrical shape. It's a, it's a very complicated geometrical shape, um, but it still draws our attention in that way. Uh, and And... We looked at a few other examples, and, and Simono talks about how there are circumstances where a simple geometrical shape does have this value of you know standing out from the the background and drawing our attention, but it, it does so not because it's a simple geometrical shape, but instead because it um, is a sign of human presence in the environment. So he gives an example of like you're walking along a beach or you're in a forest or whatever, and you suddenly see a perfect circle on the ground, uh, you or a square or whatever. Uh, you would immediately um, uh, assume that a person had uh, either, you know, drawn the circle or or 
uh, cleared out a circle, a circular shape in the forest or whatever. Um, uh, and so much so that even naturally forming uh, circular shapes like uh, circles of mushrooms, they're these sort of legendary um, accounts that they're, um, you know, fairy circles or, or uh, circles um, formed from witches' dances or whatever. Uh, so the sort of pregnancy or this value of attracting our attention, standing out from the background, uh, is is not due to the fact that it's a circular shape or a simple geometrical figure. It's the fact that this geometrical figure is a sign of the presence of human beings in this uh, environment. Um, so again, it's it's more complicated than this sort of simple minimization of a of attention that the Gestalt psychologist wanted to identify as the the principle for pregnancy, um, and uh, um, instead. Uh, and so this is connected with the text that we read in Individuation Volume 2, Form Information Potentials, where Simon Don gives his account of um, what he calls the tension of information. And he, in general, in, in uh, many different places that we've looked at, he, he argues against this idea that a minimization of tension could be sort of the, uh, or a minimization of surprise in the case of information theory could could, could be the sort of source of um uh, meaning or uh, the principle of psychological functioning or something like that. Uh, he he always argues that um, there what we instead find is a kind of meta stability as opposed to a a, a, a final equilibrium as the uh, the sort of goal stage. Um, so meta stability always preserves the possibility of future transformations as opposed to a, a final equilibrium in which all the potentials have been used up and there's no more uh, potential for transformation. So that's um, sort of what we looked at last time. And now we're starting on part three of the book. Uh, so the parts of the book or the of the lecture series correspond to the um, temporal division of, of the cycle of the image that he set out in the introduction. So we're starting on now um, the image, uh, what he calls the a posteriori image. Uh, so this is the image after the uh, perception or after the encounter with the object. Uh, and we'll we'll see he's going to go through this uh, this moment of the cycle of the image. So this uh, future after the encounter with the object, um, he's going to go through it uh, in uh, each of the levels of the cycle. So he's going to talk about it at the um, sort of first uh, level, the what he sometimes calls the biological level, and then at the psychological level or the secondary level, and then finally at the um, uh, reflexive level. Um, so we'll, uh, this is a fairly long part of the book, but uh, we'll go through each of those sections over the next uh, few weeks. Okay, um, so let's get into the reading. If someone would like to start from the beginning of the, of the part. I can read. Part three, the effective emotional content of images. The a posteriori, a posteriori image or symbol. A, the level of elementary conditionings. Uh, Pregung and critical periods. One, imprinting. Pregung, Renation, uh, Renation, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. In 1935, Lorenz described a mode of acquisition consisting of a very short and very early kind of impregnation. Such a mode of acquisition produces modes of activity and reactions to stimuli taken to be uh, congenital instincts, which are, in fact, a particular type of learning. Lorenz discovered this mode of conditioning because he thought that the categorical imperative of researchers in ethology was to live with animals in their natural environment, leaving them free to retain the tempo of their spontaneous existence. 
Moreover, Lorenz perfected this method of observation through participation by learning gestures, vocal expressions, and attitudes, allowing a human being to intervene by forming a natural group with the animal. Hence, for a bird born in an incubator, the human may play the role of mother if he or she answers the cries of a young bird as its mother would do. Lorenz studied the complete set of behaviors of a chick named Martina by learning the whirring of the chick's, quote, wee, 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 uh, quote, I'm here, where are you, unquote. It's whir, whir, etc. and the various cries of the adult, quote, unquote, gang, 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 or, quote, unquote, gang, 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 or, quote, unquote, ran. By thus instituting a very early relation between the young animal and the observer, Lorenz noted that learning processes occur over a very short time, a certain number of hours or days after its birth. A young bird, gray goose or duck, is imprinted with the image of its parent being, uh, whether it's natural parent or an adopted parent, a human animal or an animal of, an, of another species. To achieve this, a certain number of signals and responses are required. Imprinting occurs or at least takes hold within a regime of exchanges between the young and its surroundings. Accordingly, a chick may start by following a dog, yet soon abandon this adoptive parent that does not answer its characteristic signals. While a relation with the nurturing human parent can become lasting if the, if the human has learned to respond according to the semantics of the species. I guess I'll read the next paragraph. These observations are far from isolated and may be associated with several categories of facts, whether among animals or humans. It has been noticed in particular that the parasitic varieties of the cuckoo species laying their eggs in the nests of other species are endowed with the capacity of recognizing their nurturing parents. The young cuckoo, once adult, is able to recognize the nest of its host species and, by preference, will lay eggs in the species' nest. Learning here amounts to a quote-unquote second nature, since the offspring of a cuckoo born in a warbler's nest, for instance, will go on laying eggs in warbler's nests. Without making hypotheses on representation among birds, we can say that, practically speaking, being born in a given milieu allows the recognition of this milieu through certain characteristic stimuli and generates a tendency to choose this milieu over others. Among humans observed cases of wild children have shown their predilection for food, for instance, raw meat they had to eat among their nurturing parents. These are remarkable facts because they appear to be an interference of the non-human and the human and have drawn attention to the irreversibility of such fundamental learning. Yet a great number of other learning processes that seem to be traits of character and innate characteristics of personality are probably also forms of learning acquired early on. Food habits, hab habitat preference, and perhaps reactions of sympathy or antipathy to persons having a specific look corresponding to a specific image. Defense or sympathy reactions may bear the determining mark of early and irreversible learning experiences, as much as food preferences or other choice reactions. Learning processes are not solely representational or motor. They imply an association between modalities of comportment and a characteristic set of stimuli coming from the milieu having a determinate balance. Yeah, so this, these examples of the imprinting on the, the young bird or, well, I guess the young bird in case of the sort of parent substitute or the cuckoo recognizing the nest. Um, these are instances of this like a posteriori image or the image after after its encounter sort of going on to modify behavior even though it's no longer present.
Yeah, so here we have, um, so he's going to he's going to sort of build up to this idea of um, the symbol. We'll see that in a, a few pages or maybe the next page. Um, um, yeah, so he's going to talk about what, what exactly this um, imprinting has to do with symbols. But um, we can already see here that, yeah, so we have this um, encounter with the object, um, you know, sort of in the typical case, you have um, the goose uh, chick that you know, sees its parents and, and follows the mother. Um, 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 but uh, in sort of less typical cases, it can be other animals, uh, a human, whatever. Um, um, but so then it, it has this sort of initial experience, this initial encounter with this um, uh, parent object. Uh, and then afterwards, its behavior is is uh, oriented around this image of, you know, this is what my parent is. Um, and, and so this is sort of... Uh, uh, yeah, this image is a, a sort of pool around which its behavior is structured um, after that first encounter. Uh, and that's been, yeah, Laurent is an interesting guy. Um, um, his, uh, his books, he has a, several, you know, very readable uh, sort of popularizations about ethology. Um, and um, so he sort of pioneered this idea of uh, studying animals in not, uh, in a, like a laboratory setting, um, so, like, you know, sort of the, the typical, like, rats in a maze kind of setting. Um, but instead having, uh, so it's not exactly natural because he, what he did actually was to keep um, all these different animals in his house. So he has some funny stories about, like, having a flock of geese living in your in your house um, and, uh, you know, how how that works out. Um, not, not too well is the short version. Um, but... Um, yeah, so he would live with these animals and develop a social relation with them. So he he sort of incorporates himself into the group. Uh, you know, geese have a, a, a certain social structure and he, you know, by learning the different sounds and gestures and so on, he's able to incorporate himself into this social structure. And, um, and that allows him to interact with these animals in a much more natural setting, even though it's not like sort of wild or, or like completely natural it's it's much more natural or it allows the geese to or the other animals to um express their behavior in a much uh more um free way than they would in a a, a lab setting where they have to navigate a maze or press a lever or whatever um so um yeah so this this sort of method is something that Lorenz was one of the first people to apply and what he identified here and that Simon Nolan's talking about this imprinting. So this is, I think, pretty well known now, but was uh, a, sort of a new development in the 1930s. Um, so, yeah, many animals, uh, especially most famously um, uh, certain birds, they uh, in the first um, minutes or hours after they, they, they hatch or are born, they sort of identify um, something as a parent or something as the the entity to be followed. Um, they sort of attach themselves to um, this entity, which in the normal case is the is actually one of the parents, but sometimes can be other uh, animals or or uh, entities in the environment. And uh, and so they they imprint themselves onto this figure, and then they follow it around. Um, they sort of rely on this figure for protection and uh, guidance and so on. Um, and uh, so Simon Don points to, he talks about the, the example of geese, which is, I think, one of the first instances where this was identified. Uh, but then he talks about a slightly different example with the cuckoo, which, um, uh, so they're 
parasitic birds in the sense that they, they lay their eggs in other birds' nests, and then the young cuckoo hatches, and uh, in some instances will actually uh, kick the other eggs out of the nest so that it's the only one left, and then the, the birds of the host species, uh, the parents will feed this uh, uh, parasite bird instead of their own uh, chicks. Um, and uh, and then Simondo points out that this, uh, in in at least some varieties of cuckoos, they um, they will lay their eggs in the same uh, in the nest of the same species as the ones where they were themselves hatched. So they they've learned um, that you know this type of nest or this type of bird is the kind of bird that will um, uh, they've sort of associated this type of bird with. Um, hatching or uh as like an environment in which to lay eggs um and uh and yeah so that's that's a, a slightly different kind of imprinting um where they've learned through this sort of very early experience where um they, they formed an image of like the place to to lay eggs or the place for hatching or something like that um uh and Simondon suggests um and he's going to talk about you know the fact that there's not a lot of uh research on this in humans, but he's going to suggest that there are similar um, effects in humans where um, we have, um, you know, there are phenomena like uh, antipathies, like you, you meet someone and you just go, yeah, I don't like this person. Or sometimes you meet someone and you, you do really like them, uh, but you have no sort of particular reason. It's not like you, um, you know, have a, I don't know, political disagreement with them or whatever. You just sort of, you know, I don't like his face or whatever, something uh, very vague like that. Um, and Simondo suggests that this type of antipathy or sympathy that doesn't have a, a sort of concrete basis uh, could be the result of this type of imprinting. So someone uh, maybe resembles um, uh, a person that uh, I don't know hurt you when you were um, uh, a child, or that you know scared you, or or you know, did something that you didn't like when you were a child, and then without you even sort of realizing it as an adult, you meet someone that has a resemblance to this. Uh, other figure and and that makes you uh, not like that person without any real reason. Um, so yeah, this this is something that I think even now has not really been studied. Um, like what what connection um, adult or later uh, you know aversion or sympathy towards a person might have towards uh, uh, with um, childhood experiences that uh, it would be very difficult to study that in a like systematic way. I think, but. Um, um, yeah, it, it it seems likely that there are probably similar effects in humans, but it's it's much harder to investigate, in partly because of like ethical considerations. Uh, things that you can do in manipulating a human environment are obviously much more limited than you can with geese. Um, but um, uh, yeah, it's it's I think a good chance that we have similar um, phenomena at work in our um, uh, psychological development, as in the case of birds that have been well studied okay uh let's go on to the next bit uh, if someone else could read up to the subsection break uh, on the next page i can read if uh, 61 well, uh yeah I'll, you can go ahead yeah i can i can i can do so should, should i read from these observations right uh no the next one uh we can even go further i can even go further according to some research it appears that choice reactions to configure configurations of a milieu occasion not only individual learning process uh, processes but hereditary conditionings transmissible to off offspring. American researchers have captured the rodents of the same species in the wild tre tre treeless 
environment and a and in a forest. They were then raised in a laboratory under identical conditions. The offspring of both groups were then led to an experimental apparatus with a tunnel opening onto a, the boundary between two environments, one with and the other uh, the other without trees, the subject to having the possibility of opting for either. Among offspring from the forest environment, the proportion of those opting for the same environment as their parents was higher than those they those that did not. Of course, this general experiment does not allow us to say where these transmitted principles of choice might be located. It could be, for instance, an organic disposition and an even development of arduinal glands, altering the regime of needs, thermal equilibrium, or light sensitivity, and the differential choice may result from a search for a preferendum. Referendum. However, the fact remains: the balance of various stimuli configurations may be altered by early individual learning experiences, and perhaps in some cases through transmitted hereditary experience. Indeed, the support for information in organisms may not be exclusive, cerebral, cerebral, cerebral. Which would explain why the why the replacement of one nervous system by another, hereditary transmissions only of the of the species structures, while erasing neural memory traces could give way to a transmission of information or reactive dispositions through a non-neural chemical pathway. Experiment on planarians. Reactive modalities of the of, of the affective emotional type, which play a, such a large role in choices, define and fix the balance balance of images, which are one of the bases of organization of com- comportment. Better stop here, right? Yeah, that's a good place to stop. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, yeah. So this bit. Um, so there's a long-standing controversy in um, evolutionary biology about what's called the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Um, and, and so this was especially in the early 20th century um, debated uh, um, between, so the, the sort of um, core Darwinian method of, or um, mechanism of evolution um, doesn't allow for the inheritance of acquired characteristics. So um, the Darwinian mechanism of evolution is um, there's variation in the population and there's a differential uh, rate of reproduction or uh, of um, successful reproduction among the um, different varieties in a population, uh, and there's inheritance of um, of the the characteristics um, of the members of the population, and those three sort of principles together lead to uh, a change in the um, portion of the different varieties in a population, and eventually they can lead to um, changes in uh, uh, so like a uh, for example, a, a, a species of animal that has a certain size um, may, over many generations, uh, may you know grow or get smaller based on evolutionary pressures that make uh, make it advantageous to be bigger or smaller depending on what the environment is. Um, and so this uh, this whole um, mechanism doesn't involve any inheritance of acquired characteristics. So there's nothing. Uh, in the life history of an individual organism that is transmitted to the organism's descendants. It's only the genetic um, or hereditary factor that um, is, you know, brings about the uh, 
development of that organism and then the properties that the um, developed organism has um, determine whether it's successful in reproducing or not. And then those properties are inherited by the offspring. Uh, and then the other um, sort of mechanism for evolution is sometimes known as the Lamarckian um, evolution, uh, which is a slight misnomer because Lamarck actually didn't make this sort of a central principle to his um, to his system of evolution. But the idea is that um, organisms uh, will have certain experiences. They they undergo they perform actions of certain kinds and they have certain experiences. And this leads to changes in their body. So like you can think of, for example, if you lift weights, your muscles get bigger. Um, uh, that's a, a sort of uh, acquired characteristic over your life history. Um, uh, and the idea that some, at least in some circumstances, these acquired characteristics can be inherited from one generation to the next. Um, and so this was, you know, whether there was such a thing as acquired characteristics was uh, uh, very uh, heavily debated in the early 20th century. Um, uh, and it's interesting also because Darwin himself um, was not very, um, uh, I guess, dogmatic or principled on this topic. Like he, uh, in later editions of The Origin of Species, he did allow for um, inheritance of acquired characteristics. Um, um, so he wasn't, he didn't think that the, the sort of classic Darwinian mechanism was the only mechanism of evolution. Um, but over the course of the 20th century, most biologists rejected the notion of um, inheritance of acquired characteristics. Uh, but then more recently, there's been, um, I think, more complicated. The story has gotten more complicated because there's epigenetic processes as well as um, so we inherit genetic material, but we also inherit um, um, sort of patterns of which genes are activated uh, at, at which times uh, and under which conditions. Um, so um, this there does seem to be um, and this is something I don't know well, but uh, there's epigenetic inheritance that does um, allow for the possibility of uh, inheritance of acquired characteristics under certain circumstances, but probably not uh, in sort of all of the circumstances that in the early 20th century were um, suggested as being instances of inherit inheritance of acquired characteristics. Um, um, so yeah, it, it's much more complicated today than it was um, in the early 20th century, but Simon Don was writing at a time where I think the um, sort of consensus around um, Darwinian, the Darwinian mechanism of evolution was not 100% settled. Um, so he's still, uh, I think, open to this idea that there could be inheritance of acquired characteristics. Uh, but the example, and he met, he sort of recognizes this himself, but the example he talks about here with these rodents that select either um, the forest environment or the open environment, um, it, it doesn't really demonstrate the inheritance of acquired characteristics because um, the the rodents that are captured in the forest environment um, may have some sort of uh, difference um, from uh, genetic difference from the ones that are captured in the um, uh, open environment. And it's, it's that genetic difference that would be inherited as opposed to um, an inheritance of a, of a choice or an experience of those of individual organisms. So it's 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 often very difficult to um, sort of differentiate or to find conclusive evidence of inheritance of acquired characteristics. Um, uh, so the, the example Simon Don gives doesn't really show what he 
suggests that it might show and and he recognizes that there are other possible explanations as well so yeah it's a it's a sort of inconclusive example so at the, at the end of the uh, what Simone wants to say here is like uh interaction with uh milieu decides the finer attributes of being like like a it's kind of like the extension of or application of his idea of uh, psychic individuation isn't it nope um yeah i think we can make connections with the uh, the part on psychic individuation in uh individuation the the book um um we're going to see a little bit later what use he's going to make of the notion of milieu and um the symbol we'll see that in a few pages um because uh, the symbol, this notion of the symbol is always associated with the milieu for Simondon. The, the individual and the milieu form this symbolic relation to each other, um, which we'll, we'll talk about in a few pages. Um, but um, yeah, I think the, the idea here, uh, the reason why he's interested in the possibility of the inheritance of acquired characteristics is um, that he wants to show that learning, uh, so this imprinting, for example, and... Um, um, similar processes of learning can structure the organism after the encounter with the object um, so that the uh, whole sort of behavioral repertoire of, of a particular organism is um, uh, reoriented or is, is sort of structured around this image of whether it's the parent or um, the food source or whatever other um, uh, you know, objects are important to that organism. Um, so yeah, I think that's the idea here, is just sort of to show how this encounter with the object can have, um, I guess, reverberations throughout the lifespan of the organism and, and potentially beyond it into, uh, into the life of its, uh, of its offspring as well. Okay, thank you. And uh, before we go on to the next bit, though, another um, an interesting phenomenon that I, uh, I think is relevant here or maybe a slight tangent, but is connected to this question about inheritance of acquired characteristics is what's called the, the Baldwin effect, um, uh, named after an American psychologist, uh, James Mark Baldwin, who um, um, he proposed uh, a method or a, a mechanism by means of which um, what seems like the inheritance of acquired characteristics can actually happen through the Darwinian mechanism of evolution. And so the idea is that if you have um, a population of organisms that uh, regularly have to learn a certain type of uh, behavior. Uh, so like um, organisms that maybe have to learn what type of food to eat, um, uh, you know, this is a good food source or whatever, uh, or they have to learn that this is a predator to avoid uh, anything like that. They, they regularly have to learn something. Um, you So there's going to be in this environment, uh, if, assuming that this learning um, requirements to remain stable over many generations is going to be an evolutionary pressure towards um, uh, accelerating that learning. So if there's any sort of variation in the population in terms of how quickly they can learn that, uh, you know, this is a predator or this is a good food source, um, the individual organisms who are capable of learning this, uh, uh, you know, property of the environment more quickly than others will have a better chance of survival and reproduction. Uh, and what this will mean over many generations uh, is that the learning process will become shorter and shorter, and um, eventually it could um, uh, you know, become what we would describe as an innate um, 
reaction to a stimulus. So um, if the, you know, it, like if we take a sort of hypothetical example of like monkeys that are um, um, subject to predation by eagles, for example, they, they will, uh, and you know, there are monkeys that are um, in that situation in real life. Um, so if they learn more and more quickly that eagles, the, the shape of an eagle flying above is uh, something dangerous to hide from, um, eventually they might uh, respond to the shape of an eagle flying overhead um, without ever having seen it before. They might hide from this uh, experience uh, without ever having seen it before or without having seen other monkeys hide from an eagle or anything like that. Um, so uh, after many generations, this learning process will um, eventually um, have a, t a, a zero um, time length or um, a zero repetition uh, learning process. Um, so the uh, what was at one point a learned um, uh, response to a particular experience eventually becomes uh, an innate response or what we can describe as an innate response to that um, experience. And so it, it looks like um, uh, like if you just observe that at time one, the animals um, learn to be afraid of eagles. Um, and then at time two, the descendants of those animals are innately afraid of eagles. You would think that it's like a, an inheritance of acquired characteristics, but it's actually um, through um, natural selection, the Darwinian mechanism, that, um, that this uh, you know, response to, to seeing an eagle um, becomes innate. So it's, uh, yeah, again, it's very difficult in general to um, show that something is actually an instance of inheritance of acquired characteristics and not um, something like the Baldwin effect uh, brought about through the mechanism of natural selection. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, 61, would you like to read? Uh, yeah, sure. I guess it's my turn. Hold on. Uh, okay, so, to the human aspects of elementary conditionings. Psychoanalytical studies have insisted on the importance of the early experience of children around their mother, then educators, then broader circles. Moreover, the process of introjection, the imaginary incorporation of an object or a beloved or hated person within the subject's ego or superego, represents a lasting basis for affective emotional reactions in given situations. These are complete images introduced in the primary psychism, see Melanie Klein's studies serving as models for the subject's choice and subsequent reactions. Yet we might expand this interpretation to consider that this acquisition of affective emotional valences may be instituted every time the subject encounters a new situation, when the awakening of motivation is intense, and the lack of previous structures affords a margin of indetermination to the behavior. Steckel has studied human sexuality in this purview in two books titled Impotence in the Male and Frigidity in Women, in which the author analyzes the causes of a large number of dyspareunia. The comportment of an entire life appears to be directed by the affective emotional components of fundamental moments in a subject's history that are not necessarily connected to childhood. The necessity in the course of ontogenesis of constituting definite affective emotional reactions discloses privileged periods that may be termed critical periods. Hence, an ab abandoned child needs to constitute in himself the image of his mother at a given age, and when older, even if the child is well-treated in his adopted family, he can continue to display features of behavior, affective indifference, or constant testing of the affection of his circle, 
rendering adaptation difficult and often provoking rejection. What is lacking is a complete image of the mother that includes an affective emotional response to a definite grouping of images, attitudes, and perceptions offered by adults. But not all images concern human beings. They include also a primitive relation to object, and one social circle contains privileged objects as well as privileged beings like the mother. Right, so here we have the um, um, application of these ideas to the human case. We've seen a little bit in the previous sections about, um, you know, potential connections to human um, experience or human development. Uh, and so this, um, here Simon Doan is drawing on uh, psychoanalytic uh, studies, which, um, so, you know, famously there are these different phases that, that Freud, for example, um, posits in development of sexuality in humans. Um, and uh, um, the suggestion here um, is that these phases or, or similar types of phases in human development of you know, the development of affective life of human beings would have to do with um, there would be sort of um, necessary stimulus that has to go along with the phases uh, of development. So in the same way that the um, goose chick has to uh, you know, receive a certain type of response from the mother object, um, uh, likewise, human uh, children have to receive a certain response from the uh, caregivers to you know, develop a certain type of uh, you know, what we might call normal affective life. Um, some of the specific examples that he gives, uh, I think, are probably not super convincing. Uh, like, I think a lot of this stuff about um, some of the psychoanalytic theories uh, having to do with um, the relationship between a child and its parents, uh, I think, um, are pretty outdated. Um, you know, there's there was a um, at one point there was uh, this account, the psychoanalytic account, that schizophrenia was a result of frigid mothers who you know didn't provide affection to their children, um, and and that's you know been debunked. Uh, there's no uh, connection between like um, the behavior of the mother towards the child uh, and uh, schizophrenia. Um, um, but um, yeah, so some of these explanations that have to do with these sort of very specific correlations between like the behavior of the parents and especially the mother and uh, the affective development of the child are um, probably a lot harder to maintain than uh, the early psychoanalytic authors um, argued for. Uh, and so these are, uh, because human development is so complicated, it's, it's, I think, never going to be easy to just say, oh, yes, this um, sort of affective disposition is the result of experience X. Um, there's always so many other experiences and, you know, chemical factors and so many other things that feed into the development of um, uh, the affective life of an individual that uh, being, it, it's going to be very difficult to say that um, there are these sort of direct, simple correlations between, uh, you know, a particular experience and a, a certain structure of affective life. Um, but there are things in sort of more extreme cases, so not like... Um, what we might describe as normal development, um, like uh, there's this concept of uh, intergenerational trauma. Um, so it, it's been recognized that um, people who undergo traumatic experiences um, and who are not able to manage those experiences in a in a healthy way that you know they might be suffering from PTSD, for example, um, they will also tend that the children of those people will sort of um, experience the consequences of that trauma. 
um, uh, that you know the the um, life experience of the child of someone who has undergone uh, a traumatic experience can can be affected by the parent's traumatic experience. So it's not again, it's not a inheritance of acquired characteristics. It's just that the parenting style and the relationship between the parent and the child will be affected by the uh, trauma that the parent has undergone, and um, and so the child will. Um, uh, you know, develop uh, a particular form of affective life as a result of the parents' trauma that uh, is you know, sort of affect a, a second generation effect of the trauma that the parent has undergone. Um, so uh, this is the sort of instance of the type of uh, phenomenon that Simon Don was talking about here. Um, so again, it's uh, this. So it's not an imprinting experience, but you have this. Uh, encounter in this case a, a very negative encounter with um it can be another person or you know a car accident or whatever um uh you have this very negative experience um and the consequences of that experience can be felt not just by that person throughout the rest of their life but also by their children um you know being sort of transmitted by by means of the parenting and the relationship between parent and child um, and how that affects the child in, in their development later on. I'm wondering, you know, like uh, for, for babies, like they have some kind of um, blanket syndrome. I, I, I'm not sure like a, if you also use that word, like somebody calls it, refers to it as like a uh, lioness, lioness blanket. Like kids have some kind of dolls or uh, objects like um, they are... Uh, fond of so um yeah the last last line like uh not only uh being but also kind of objects privileged objects uh do they uh do they refer to as that kind of thing like i mean once the social cycle against uh contains privileged objects as well as privileged beings like the mother yeah that's actually the topic of the the next section so we're going to go all into um the relationship between a child and the various objects that um, these privileged objects that the child um, is attached to. So yeah, the, the blanket um, is a perfect example of uh, an object that can have a very significant um, emotional attachment and valence for the child uh, that, um, uh, yeah, plays this role of this privileged object. Yeah, of course, like, we, we are going to read the uh, next section, but the um, come. I hope I can sort out like how I mean the social circle contain. So does it? It doesn't mean like uh, the emulate emulate the privileged objects, right? Like just like a contain privileged objects, not the uh, emulate or copy or imitate the privileged objects, right? Yeah. So like the child, um, as the child is growing up, they, they you know there are certain uh people that are especially important, uh, you know, in, in the normal case, it's the, the parents, but it can be other people that have this, um, uh, you know, importance to the child in their development and the relationship between the child and this person is, is one of the sort of structuring principles that the child's behavior is oriented around. Um, but then there's also these objects like the blanket, for example, or, um, and we're going to talk about toys in the next section. So um, particular objects, or it can be a pet, uh, as well, um, that lives in the house. Um, so, um, animals, uh, blankets, whatever, any, uh, you know, particular toys, these things can be, um, uh, you know, 
objects that have a, a privileged role, a, a particular special role for the child that um, have this very strong uh, emotional response um, associated with them, and uh, um, that you know the image of this object, um, or like after the encounter, the initial encounter with the object, the this object plays the role of an image in that um, the child's behavior is uh, oriented around this object. Um, you know, they, they might cry when the object is not there, for example, or something like that. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's in that sense that the privileged object is part of the child's social circle. All right. Thank you. Uh, so sorry. Can I have one more question? Like, can I can I ask you one more question? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like a mother image or father figure. I mean, uh, as far as understanding um, until now, like the what Simongjong says is like uh, if uh, children have a preference on, I mean, they, I mean, like something like they can uh, imitate that kind of image. But the at the same time, sometimes people copy, I mean, emulate the behaviors or attitude of somebody they don't like. At the same time, have you ever seen that kind of things? Like, if somebody doesn't like particular person's behavior or something like that, but at the end of the day, like somebody would find himself or herself like doing this almost a similar thing, like in everyday life. Yeah. So Simon Don doesn't really go into um, the like intricacies of you know imitation and how it can um, you know play out in in the life of a child. Um, um, but yeah, you're right that um, you can imitate someone that you have a you know an enemy relationship with. You can sort of find yourself doing things that your enemy does, or you can have a, a, a you know relationships like sibling rivalry, where you might um, you know one child might uh, resent the other child or have a antipathy to the the other child, and um, but at the same time they sort of copy each other. Um, um, so yeah, it, it, there's much more complicated relationships that can happen. Um, so, but the um, so imitation is only one sort of instance of this uh, relationship between the child and the parent. Um, the uh, it's it's more generally what these relationships consist in is what Simone was interested in here, not imitation as such. Um, so, uh, like he talks about the relationship between. Um, uh, like an orphan or an abandoned child and the foster parents and the way that it can um, uh, get into this sort of vicious circle where the child um, is constantly sort of testing the affection of the foster parents and this sort of constant testing um, sort of pushes the parents away um, uh, and uh, and that leads to the child feeling abandoned and, and then, you know, even, you know, uh, more motivated to test the affection of the parents and or foster parents and so on. Um, so it's it's this sort of vicious circle that can happen. So it's not in that case. There's no imitation exactly, but the the relationship between the um, the child and the foster parents is um, structured through the uh, you know the the fact that this or according to Simon Don's analysis here, it's structured by the fact that the uh, child has not had the experience of um, parental affection at the sort of uh, proper developmental time where um, if they had had that experience, they would have developed a, a more stable affective structure and they wouldn't get into this vicious circle. 
so again, it's it's not imitation, but a, a different type of uh, a more dynamic relationship between the child and the foster parents. Ah, got it. So kind of it's more like intensity, right? Like not the uh, preference or I mean negative or positive, uh, kind of like uh, the, the how to say disposition, like coming I mean, feelings or, or attention, but the uh, more like uh, intensity. Like how 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 much like focus focusing on that? Uh, yeah, so intensity I think can be part of it. Um, I think yeah. So like in the case of these foster children, um, it could be that they they have this maybe a, a heightened intensity of this need for um, certainty about the affection of the foster parents. Whereas um, children who grow up in a stable household, um, maybe they have less uh, less sort of. Um, need to test the affection of the of the parent figure um they they have like this confidence in the in the affection of the parents that uh that these foster children don't have uh so there would be sort of less intensity of this like felt need to um be certain of the uh parent figure's affection uh so yeah intensity can be part of it but i think the what simon was pointing to here is the the sort of development over time of the process that brings about um, a particular affective disposition. So it's the fact that the um, the child, the foster child, um, didn't receive um, a stable, affective response from uh, a parent figure at the proper time in its development. Uh, this leads to this behavior that um, this constant testing of the affection of the of the foster parents, which has the effect of pushing the parents away and making this sort of stable affective relationship even harder to um, achieve. And so um, there's a sort of interaction between the child and the parent that brings about the um, formation of a particular structure, uh, a particular emotional or affective structure of the um, of the child as it developed into an adult. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I mean, the specifics of the uh, process that Simon Don describes, I think you can sort of contest if that's accurate or not. Um, you would have to look at, you know, more detailed studies of uh, foster children and, and how they develop and things like that. But uh, um, I think the more general sort of like method of explanation, this sort of interaction between parent and child as um, bringing about the formation of the affective life of the child, I think that's like the more sort of the core point that we can uh, Hold on to. All right. Thank you. Okay. So let's go on to the next section. Um, so I can read, uh, let's see, this is a longer subsection here. So I'll read a, a page or so. Um, we'll learn all about toys. Okay. Subsection three images of the object. It is quite probable that early experiences do not sharply differentiate between the images of living beings, parents, and peers, and objects. Later, though, a splitting takes place whereby images of the relation with living beings become separated from images representing the milieu as the basis for the gradual organization of the territory. Both ethology and psychoanalysis have emphasized phenomena of irreversible learning devolving from the primitive relation to parents and other living beings. The other category, that of objects, has occasioned much less attention. Often it is approached only through symbolic linkage to the first. But we might wonder whether this is not a rather anthropocentric vision of various, uh, various situations. Even in the case of humans, reality is probably less simple and less homogeneous. With regard to animals, the very precocious character of their relation to objects without direct connection to the parent is beyond doubt, at least for certain species. Among nest-dwelling birds, for instance, parents are the necessary intermediaries between the world and their chicks. 
who remain entirely dependent on them for food. The nest alone is a non-living reality with the status of object, while for non-nest-dwelling birds, the parent's valence is foremost that of a protector and guide. Food is sought and absorbed as soon as birth. The chick already having the sensorial adaptations and coordinated automatism of the action system that makes this activity autonomous, pecking, scratching the ground, or digging up insect nests among buzzards. The relation to the object is as primitive as the relationship to the socius or to the parents. Finally, in some categories, the parent is absent or, or already dead, reptiles, insects, when the offspring is born. In all cases, imprinting concerns the milieu, and we can suppose that the election of privileged objects having the same valence as parents takes place in cases cited by Lorentz. Food is not the only type of function that can trigger imprinting that defines primordial images. Shelter is an equally primordial reality, since reactions of flight at the signals uh, indicating the approach of a, of a specific predator may be as precocious as those towards the search for food. This domain could open research towards a more general ethology, perhaps less interesting for a comparison with humans, but allowing the analysis of determining factors of the conduct of species that are lower on the ladder of living beings. For people too, it is not only other humans that are real. A brilliant educator, Maria Montessori, has understood the importance of the direct relation between the child and, the ob and objects. She has sought to compose a revelatory milieu of objects around the child because she believed th that the child needs to encounter stable objects that can be manipulated and seized as much as it needs to encounter loving and generous human presences. The Casa dei Bambini is a milieu filled with objects that are stimulating, never misleading or deceitful, and which do not trigger negative affective emotional experiences. To borrow a metaphor from uh, ornithology, we might say that Maria Montessori has sought not so much to make the child into an artificial uh, into an artificial nest dweller, or at least an artificially prolonged nest dweller. Rather, she placed within reach of the child objects that serve as key points within their material universe. Sinks that are not sized for adults, doorknobs that obey the force and prehensile capacity of young children, and horizontal switches that can be palm activated. Digital prehensile capacity comes later and lacks strength for a long time. Maria Montessori's pedagogy artfully grasps the physiology of perceptual motor functions of the child, allowing the child to organize his own territory of objects without having constant recourse to the adult as caregiver for dressing, washing, or bodily needs. The American civilization of the time, very open to objects and developing in a low-density country with little available personnel, widely welcomed the Montessori method. We will not develop here other aspects of this pedagogical method, but it is clear that with such bases, an important place is reserved for spontaneous discovery through manipulation and observation, and that the didactic and authoritarian aspect is all the more reduced. Yet it is not enough to say it is an active method, since a method may be active by calling on essentially human realities, while here activities are centered, centered on objects. Right, and uh, yeah, so Angus has posted a picture of a, a Montessori classroom, so the, yeah, the uh, I don't know a lot about this, but uh, yeah, these, these types of schools are still around today. Um, Montessori schools. Um, and part of the idea is that you have things that are child-sized and sort of uh, structured in such a way that children can use them independently. Um, so the examples that um, that uh, Simon Don talks about here are like a sink that's at the, the height where the, the child can use it. Um, and so the child can, can you know, wash their hands without um, needing an adult to you know, lift them up to the sink or, or help them or anything. Uh, and so the idea is that um, children learn to uh, experience their environment, to manipulate objects, um, perform different tasks uh, independently. And so they, they so the, the learning process is not like sort of sitting and being taught by this authority figure, but instead it's a, a sort of exploratory process where you manipulate objects and learn their properties through experience. 
so this this is um, sort of one one instance of um, this uh, relationship to objects that are not just the parents or or not just other uh, living beings. So that's the sort of uh, central point of this section uh, subsection is this idea that um, our our experience of objects or um, our our learning to respond to objects in various ways can be just as important as our experience of uh, living beings, including our parents. This point about direct interaction with the object um, in the Montessori schools and also in the case of the birds that aren't raised in nests reminds me of the uh, beginning of Individuation Volume 2, where he talks about the technician. Um, and the technician for Simon Don, interestingly, I think, like, for him, the earliest examples of technicians were like uh, prophets or, you know, like mystics of some kind, you know, uh, people who interacted with the, the divine, but also, you know, it includes like engineers. Um, but the, the idea that the, instead of having this kind of purely social uh, mediated relationship with the object in the milieu, the technician um, has direct access, immediate access to the object. And uh, I think that something similar is at work with the Montessori school in the way that the children can sort of, you know, use the sink or open doors on their own without adult intervention. And I wonder also if, um, I remember him saying something, I don't remember where it was, but something about like monster truck rallies uh in individuation somewhere and i wonder if he thinks that there's this uh i don't know like a inadequate uh inadequately transductive or inadequately analogical relationship to the object that leads to a kind of stereotyping of the the object or some aspect of the milieu itself that he sees as uh, deficient yeah, there's a couple of interesting uh, connections there in, in your your comment. Um, yeah, so um, starting with the last bit there, um, the what he what Simon Don referred to specifically was demolition derbies. Um, uh, so yeah, um, I can't remember the exact context, but um, he he talked about um, yeah the way that you know there's this um, uh, you know the destruction of a, an object of use, um, you know a, a car that. You know, potentially could be used um, has a has, um, a sort of affective role. It's, it's beyond just um, you know. Of course, cars are destroyed all the time in a junkyard or whatever, um, where the cars are no longer useful. But like a demolition derby is a is a new car or a car that could be used that gets destroyed, um, and uh, so it has a sort of uh, almost a sacrificial role um, in this context. Uh, um, um, but then, yeah, so you, the connection with the, um, technician, I think is an interesting one. Um, uh, and, and just, you mentioned the, um, sort of prophetic, um, role of the technician. And, and we, I think when we read that, that passage in individuation, I think I, I mentioned, um, the way that in, um, uh, a lot of uh, various parts of Africa, um, metal workers were sort of, a um, uh, in like pre-colonial times were um, uh, like a sort of caste, um, you inherited the status of a metal worker 
and they often lived like outside of the town or village in like a sort of separate community. Um, and they, there was a sort of um, ritual aspect to metalworking um, that, um, you know, that they were held to be, you know, uh, very important, but also dangerous in, in certain in certain respects. Um, um, so, um, yeah, there, there's this role of the technician, this sort of extra social role of the technician. Um, you know, they, they have access to physical objects in a way that um, other people don't have, but they also have access to potentially uh, uh, the realm of the divine or uh, the magical realm in a way that others don't have. Um, so it's it's this, yeah, this sort of uh, extra social realm that they connect to. Uh, and I, yeah, I think we can connect this to um, this uh, account of Montessori schools here that Simon Dong gives and this uh, relationship or this contrast between the uh, the nest dwelling birds and the um, like the the word in French is uh, for the other kind of birds, nidipuge, um, like nest fleeing birds. Um, so, like for those who maybe don't uh, know about this contrast, so there are certain birds that um, when they hatch, they um, they're essentially helpless. They they depend on their parents to feed them for uh, you know several weeks or or a certain amount of time um, uh, before they can actually. Um, fly or leave the nest on their own and, uh, you know, find their own food and everything. But there are other birds like chickens um, and geese, I believe, uh, as well, that um, they uh, essentially, from the moment that they hatch, they're independent, or not independent, but they, they can, you know, walk around and uh, gather food for themselves. They they, uh, they depend on the parents for, you know, protection and guidance and, and things like that, but they, they still sort of wander around semi-independently and, and can feed themselves. Um, uh, so just as a sort of uh, example of this, uh, here in Ottawa, we have um, a, a network of bike paths um, and the geese love these paths because there's like grassy areas around it. So there's tons of geese. Every year we have these uh, flocks of baby geese, which are um, very cute, but also cause a huge mess um, all over the bike paths. Um, so yeah, you have these like little geese, little goslings uh, wandering around all over the bike path. Um, um, uh, and um, yeah, so they like, as soon as they're born, essentially, or within a, uh, an hour or two, they, they can go around and, uh, you know, feed themselves, even though they, they still follow the parents um, and rely on the parents for protection. Uh, and so connecting this with the uh, technician example, we can see like maybe the normal human beings or the average human being who is not a technician is a, a sort of nest dwelling bird they, they um, are dependent on others or on the social relationship um, so most of us um, you know our our encounter with objects is always mediated by you know you buy them at a store um, you get them repaired by someone or um, you buy a new one uh, like most of the like i don't know a dishwasher or a fridge or whatever i have to know like only the biggest idea how they work and if mine breaks i have to get a new one or get someone to fix it for me um, so these objects are, um, I'm all, I only have access to these objects by mediation of a social relationship. Uh, whereas the technician, the person who actually does understand how to, how the, the fridge works and how to fix it, um, they, uh, they have, uh, this unmediated access to the objects. Um, and so they're more like the, um, nest fleeing or the non-nest dwelling birds, they're the, the ones who, uh, sort of have independent access to, uh, something outside the social relationship 
And yeah, so the Montessori school would allow for um, more people to develop something like this um, immediate relationship to objects and not only be dependent on the social relationship. Yeah, well, you were saying that about the, um, the point about the metal workers um, made me think of the part three of the uh, mode of, on the mode of existence of technical objects and how there's that initial division of the magical unity into technics and religion. But then Simon Don talks about a, a possible synthesis, future synthesis of the division. And I wonder how that's related to the connection, you know, the, the fact that he points out that a, the technician can be a prophet, but can also be, uh, you know, like a, a mechanical engineer. Um, if he's pointing towards the that uh, future synthesis there. Yeah, so in that text, in, in On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects, Part 3, um, there are like a few partial syntheses that um, appear. So the aesthetic uh, synthesis, so aesthetics or the aesthetic realm, the aesthetic mode of existence is um, a sort of partial synthesis of the technical and the religious. Um, and he eventually after you know, many other developments, he sees philosophy as playing the role of this final synthesis um, that would unite the, sort of reunite what was split from the magical unity. Um, um, but, uh, so it wouldn't just sort of return to this magical unity, but it would um, uh, sort of contain all the structure that has been developed over the centuries um, after this magical unity has, has split. Um, but yeah, so he, he talked about the different sort of partial syntheses and then the final synthesis in philosophy. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, so the split between the sort of um, religious and the technical function, um, he articulates this in terms of the figure ground distinction. Um, so like in the initial um, magical unity, um, there there is this sort of network of um, powerful points in space and powerful moments in time uh, that are sort of linked up to each other. Um, and what the technical object does is uh, to sort of uh, separate out the figure from the ground. The, so the, this point of uh, articulation of, um, of the power, uh, this magical power, uh, is, is something that is no longer tied to a particular place or a particular time where, you know, like a a magical ritual or a magical practice is something you can only do at, at the full moon or or on the peak of a mountain or whatever. Whereas um, a technical production process of, of I don't know making a, an arrow, for example, um, is something you can accomplish anywhere where you have the materials, and it doesn't matter when you do it. Um, so uh, this sort of detachment from the uh, network of places and and times. Is what articulate is what sort of is uh, incarnated in the technical object, um, and it's this aspect that the um, or this is sort of half of what the technician I think exemplifies. Um, it, so that's like the mechanical engineer side of what you were talking about. So the the mechanical engineer um, can build a, a catapult or a, a, I don't know a pulley or whatever. Um, uh, anywhere that they have the material. And we see this in, in ancient Greece where these engineers um, sort of travel around to different cities and offer their services to different rulers. Um, they're not tied to a, a particular setting. Um, 
and uh, Renaissance Italy, the same thing. You have these uh, engineers who uh, offer their services to different rulers. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so this would be one side of the technician. Uh, but then the other side is this more mysterious sort of access to the, the ground uh, of the figure ground, ground distinction. Um, this access to the sort of mysterious uh, powers that uh, underlie the um, figural reality of, of the technical objects. Um, so yeah, the technician, like the metal worker, you know, has the capacity to produce, I don't know, uh, arrowheads and, you know, bronze figurines and all these um, sort of useful objects or, or aesthetically valuable objects. Um, but then at the same time, they have these sort of mysterious um, forces that they um, incarnate or that they channel or something like that. Um, that, uh, yeah, so these two sides are at work in the, um, in the uh, figure of the technician. And um, I think I think in the technician, they are sort of still separate, even if the both sides are present. Um, and I think what Simon Don sees the role of philosophy, or one of the roles of philosophy, is to reunite those separate um, aspects that are still, yeah, they're still separate in the technician, but uh, even if they're both present. Yeah, and he also um, probably just in reference to mode of existence of technical objects, there was that section in... Um, individuation volume one where he talks about science and faith and uh argues that they're incomplete in themselves and that there needs to be a kind of synthesis between them yeah that's that's sort of a standard move for him is to identify these sort of polar opposites and um um try to find the sort of unifying points where they um where they meet each other so um yeah either either the point out of which they both arise or the points um, towards which they both sort of um, uh, are directed. Um, so yeah, that's that's like a standard move that Simon Dole makes in many different contexts. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next uh, page. Um, I think we can get to the end of this subsection and maybe stop there for today. Uh, so yeah, let's just read one page for now uh, and then we'll read the next page after if uh, I can get a volunteer. I can read. Uh... Uh, where did we, are we at besides? Uh, yes. Besides this systematic and coherent aspect, we may consider the toy or the familiar object recruited by the child without adult intervention as corresponding to imprintings related to things. Indeed, a toy is the correlate hypondant of the ego in the milieu, for better or worse. It forms a couple with the child, like the symbolon with the other symbolon, half of the primal whole from whence come sumbala in a random division. This is what causes the child's deep and essential bond with the elected object that we may call a toy, although it is not always what the adult means by this word, for it can be an animal, a tree, rocks, an old clock. The sumbalan lends itself to replacements. A yellow hen, elected as a favorite toy and named Little Yellow, may be replaced by another yellow hen considered to be the daughter of the former, whether that is the case or not, and named, quote-unquote, little yellow too. A whole dynasty of elected objects may come in succession, like a car series from which a buyer chooses. Car makers know how to produce successions and filiations through names and shapes so that the new models continue the older ones. This does not mean, in spite of a psychoanalytic interpretation, that the object is the symbol of the ego in the sense of a representative of the ego, an image of the ego. 
Rather, the object is the ego's correlate and associate without any confusion with the ego, apart from extreme cases in which belonging becomes an envelope, an ego skin. The object is the other in relation to the ego, and not the same, but an other tightly bound to the ego, its best friend. Um, in this sense, and to this extent, we can clearly understand the normative and pedagogical importance of the design of toys, which represent for children living in large cities a major source of elected objects. Such toys, prompts for the formation of images, are prototypes for the relation to the object, and their characteristic their characteristics facilitate imprinting in the child. We shall leave aside dolls as an arsenal of role play, as false objects through which a child finds a smaller being than himself, and which allows him to act as an adult in a world of norms and artifice. In fact, doll play takes place partially in the presence of the adult, and more specifically of the mother, when we are dealing with, the true, with true instances of role play, rather than with the first manifestation of the child's parental instinct. Adult norms, are, adult norms remain outside the object of election. The miniature model, a scaled reproduction of vehicles or machines, is also an occurrence of role play through which the child can play at being an adult. The captain attacking the Alamo, the head of the team launching missiles or satellites, the more or more simply a railway station master, these are accessory toy accessory toys unless they become more like instruments, miniature toy cars launched by hand for races. These adult norms, besides the fact that the fact they curtail the freedom of choice in electing a symbol object, impose an already socialized character on this choice, which passes through the intermediary of a sale, and thus through obstacles that are economic, ritual, Christmas present, gifting, that involve relations with representative adults or bartering with peers or forms of imagination translating the traditions and tastes of a given population, such as the Mickey Mouse toy series. Moreover, because adults misunderstand toys, they often overlook norms of reliability. A toy is not a serious thing. It only needs to work during the sale on the store counter. This leads to a cruel and bitter disappointment when the object that was self-chosen breaks apart in the child's hands. Instead of staying with him as he grows, resisting wear and tear, and not disintegrating as soon as it is, dis as it is disassembled. A large number of toys are like the Turin in the tale from Auvergne, where the guests of the Dauphin of Auvergne are instructed not to open it under punishment of exile. The symbol object, this perfect associate of the ego, must not be a reserve of secrets, a mysterious receptacle not to be opened, like the doors in Bluebeard's castle, for parents who never open the objects they themselves use, even when it would be helpful. I am not proposing an analysis of the impact on the child of the avatars of the toy once it has become a self-chosen object. Yet the very fact that the toy can become such an object underlines the importance of its construction according to a high standard of reliability. In order to fully ensure and fulfill its elementary role as a key point in the object world, the toy should last an entire childhood, perhaps an entire lifetime, and have neither secrets nor weaknesses for the child that is the prototype of the world. Yeah, I mean, this, this is a very interesting discussion of toys. Um, I think it's pretty much just an extension of the point that he's been been making about uh, immediate rather than sort of socially mediated relationships of the object. I also kind of feel like maybe Simon Don bought a toy for one of his kids <laughs> shortly before writing this, which uh, broke and he was annoyed about that.
Yeah, it definitely sounds like there's a personal experience. It could be either that or it could be that, you know, he, uh, as a child, maybe had a toy that he loved and uh, that broke and caused him a lot of suffering. Um, and, and you see this with children, you know, their favorite toy, they lose it or it breaks or whatever, and, and how distressing that can be. Um, um, and um, I think, yeah, so this notion of the, the symbol done, is, you know, is one we've seen many times before, but just as a quick recap. Um, the so this uh simon always connects this with the ancient greek practice of using a token for um the relationship of hospitality between a uh, uh a guest and a host so there was this practice where you'd have a a, a stone or some sort of token that you, that you would break in half and the guest would take one half and the host would keep the other half and then they could uh their descendants or family members or whatever could use this token um to uh, recognize the other partner in this relationship after you know many years, um, um, so you just hold the two pieces of the token together, and if they fit together, then it it you know shows that there you found the the right partner. Um, and uh, for Sim for Simondon, the relationship between the individual and the milieu is always this symbolic in this sense. It, it's always these two halves of a of a whole or of a greater reality that um, complement each other. And here he's talking not about the milieu as a whole, but the particular um, element, which is the the toy or the um, elected object. Uh, and and so, yeah, so, so this can be a toy in the sense, you know, something that a parent, you know, buys at the store or makes for the child, uh, you know, a toy car, or a, a house or whatever. Um, but it, as he points out here, it can also be uh, an animal um, like the the uh, the hen that the child um, sort of attaches themselves to it can be uh you know sometimes it's um an object that wasn't you know designed to be a toy uh you know like uh you know some children like you you find uh you buy a toy for the child and they they end up being more interested in the box that the toy came in than the toy itself right they use the box to it can be a car or uh it can be anything like whatever they imagine it to be um um so yeah the it can be the elected object can be just about anything. Uh, and yeah, we talked about the blanket earlier. So the blanket is an interesting case because it, uh, it has no sort of shape of its own and no real features of its own. It, you know, it has the property of being you know warm and comfortable and whatever. Um, but like it doesn't have a, it doesn't resemble a, a human uh, face or human body. It doesn't have like uh, its own sort of structure. It, it's just a sort of featureless, um, piece of fabric, uh, but at the same time, this blanket can become, uh, you know, this very strongly um, affectively charged object that the the whole sort of behavioral system of the child is organized around. You know, having this blanket with them at all times, and uh, you know, they can be very um, upset if they if they don't have the blanket, and and so on. Um, and uh, and yeah, so Simon points. So he there's this this bit about the doll. And he's uh, he's talked about the doll earlier in this uh, in this set of lectures um, where he's, he says that um, he thinks that adults sort of misunderstand the role of the doll when they try to make the doll anatomically accurate. So they they make the doll like resemble a human baby as much as possible. Um, and uh, and this is not really what the child uh, needs from a doll. Um, uh, and and he points out that children are just as happy or, or even happier with like a bundle of rags that has like a sort of big head shape at one end um, 
as as they are with like a an elaborate um uh contraption that you know re resembles a baby um so it's not the it's not the sort of um perceptual property of resemblance that is important in in the doll or any toy it's the um first of all the motor properties so the the, the object sort of allow uh the child to perform certain actions with it um and then sort of layered on top of that the child develops this affective relationship um which again can be something can can happen even to a blanket or something that has very little in the way of like um perceptual properties that might sort of lend themselves to the, the child's um attachment uh and then yeah so this idea of the of the toy as you know the importance of the toy to the child um i think is is very interesting because um it it connects again with this montessori school um uh example because the idea is that the child you want the child to um develop in such a way that they can interact with the world in a sort of stable affective way that uh they they are resilient to um you know setbacks that happen you know um they they don't sort of um break down when something bad happens to them or like they lose an object or whatever um they uh uh and you know be sort of resourceful they're capable of um uh interacting with objects um independently and you know figuring out problem solving and things like that and so this if you if this is what you want out of a child's development if you this is, this is sort of what you're directing your child towards, then the child having this uh, experience of the toy as this sort of stable object towards which they can direct themselves, that an object that doesn't deceive them or um, disappoint them, uh, is you can see why it would be very important for the child to have this experience that they they can rely on this object, uh, you know. Being able to rely on your favorite toy might be just as important as being able to rely on your parents uh, in your development. Um, and so in the same way, so, you know, it, it, we would you know, recognize that if, you're, if your parents are unreliable in various ways, if they lie to you all the time or they, they you know, promise to do something and then don't follow through or they, they don't, um, you know, provide for you um, reliably, uh, um, that that obviously ha will have an effect on your development as a child and your relationship with your parents and and you know the, the type of person that you grow up to be. But in the, in the same way uh, or in a similar way, if you have the, all, all these experiences of um, sort of cheap toys that break um, or that um, you know they they don't do what they sort of um, are advertised to do, that you that you expect you know the the toy to have. A particular property but then when you try to use it it, it doesn't do the what you wanted it to do um this type of experience of disappointment could, could be just as um uh, impactful on the child as the unreliability of the parent um so yeah i think simon don is su suggesting here that um our, we should sort of broaden our perspective on child development to include relationships um that are not purely social but that include relationships to inanimate objects as well. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Uh, we can read up to the end of the section break. Um, oh, uh, hmm, okay, uh, if a couple of people have to leave, yeah, it's probably late for you. Um, okay, maybe we can stop here and uh, pick up from here next time. Uh, so we'll, we're on page uh, 99, I believe, uh, if that's where we ended. Um, okay, uh, yeah, let's stop here. Um,
and then we can uh, pick up from there next time.